Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 355. Today is February 17th, 2022. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Today, the big item that I'd like to cover is some things that you should think about when you own a stock that crashes. I'm also just briefly here going to comment on the real volatility and you know current market conditions. I'll touch on that as well. But the big takeaway from today's episode, I want to focus on how to rationally think about whenever one of your stocks has crashed. I'll specifically be talking about Select Quote, which is a stock that I own that has recently had a major price collapse. But the things that I talk about are still concepts that I think would generally apply to any type of individual stock crash. And even collectively to when the market pulls back overall. And that's where I want to get into the current market conditions. Listen, market has been really jittery all this year. We really saw this start to happen after the market hit a big peak around the middle of November. You know, as we got into the depths of the winter months, the Omicron variant hit. That spooked a lot of people. And then the reoccurring concerns about rising inflation and how the Fed is going to have to come in and raise interest rates. All those concerns have dragged down the markets for the last, I don't know, eight weeks or so. I think it's way overdone. I think it's created a number of really good entry points into quality stocks. These are companies that currently make money and they have a bright future to continue making money for many, many years. So these are the times that you want to buy stocks and enter in and get these things at a discount. You don't want to buy them at the top. You want to buy them when everybody else is panicked and selling things because ultimately, if you own good quality companies that are continuing to earn money, then they adapt and overcome any of the current challenges and that's why they continue to be profitable into the future. The biggest fear that's really driving everything right now is whether Russia is going to invade Ukraine. You know, a couple days ago, it looked like maybe the Russian troops were pulling out and the stock market rallied. And then, you know, today, all Hades is breaking loose. So is an attack imminent? Listen, I have absolutely no idea. But this is what I do know. If you go back over the last, oh, maybe dozen years or so, I can remember at least two incidents And this is just off the top of my head. There might have even been more, but the two I remember when Russia invaded its neighbors, and that would have been country of Georgia back around, I don't know, 2008, 2009. And then just, I don't know, was it maybe four years ago or maybe even a little longer time is uh, tracking on here, but remember when they invaded Crimea? Yeah, well, of course, if you remember those events, you also remember how they crashed the stock market and how it led to a long-term recession or depression. Uh, No, it didn't, did it? And while annexing or invading or occupying Ukraine would be a bigger factor than those smaller events, I really don't see how it has any long-term market impact. Now, the threat of war always spooks the market short-term. Go back, was it maybe sometime last year when there was all this bedwetting that China was going to invade Taiwan? Didn't happen, did it? And go back even, I don't know, five years ago, back when Trump was president, remember all the hand-wringing and fear-mongering about war with North Korea? Never happened, did it? And so while I have no idea from a strategic standpoint if Russia will or won't invade, or whether there'll be more troop buildups or... Sanctions against Russia, yada, 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 whatever it is, other than some initial fear in the stock market, long term, I see it having relatively no impact at all. 
So again, I look at these short-term concerns as a buying opportunity and not a time to panic. And even broadening out some and not only looking at just the tensions over Russia and Ukraine, but let's look at these other things that are driving all the fear. And Just put this phrase in front of a question. And I'll give you three phrases. If Russia invades Ukraine, if interest rates go up, if inflation continues to increase, can okay, use those phrases and put it in front of these questions. Will people stop traveling? Will people stop eating in restaurants? Will people stop going to amusement parks and concerts? Will people stop taking vacations? I mean, think of all the pent-up demand from people that have been locked down for two years. There is so much pent-up demand, not only for leisure travel and entertainment, but also for business travel. How many businesses have not gone out to meet with their customers and their clients? How many trade shows or how many conferences haven't happened or have been held virtually with Zoom? It's not the same as getting out and meeting people and having experiences and in-person services. And rising interest rates or rising inflation or a Russian invasion are not going to quelch that pent-up demand. Go back over the last eight weeks or more. Think about all the panic of Omicron and how much that's driven down the stock market. Now you take out the fear and you look at the reality of it. Are countries opening up or closing down? Are countries tightening restrictions or easing up on restrictions? Is more or less money being spent on travel and leisure and in-person services? Well, let me read you a quote that I posted out on social media today. Quote, travel agents, hotel operators, and restaurateurs say they've seen dramatic spikes in demand in the past week, following a drop of more than 40% of the daily U.S. COVID cases and spates of warmer weather in some parts of the country. People are booking spring break trips and summer vacations. They're splurging on Disney vacations, private tours of Hawaii, and cruises to Antarctica. Unquote. So if you think that there's been supply chain issues and price inflations on things like silicon chips and cars and all these consumer products, just wait until you see this logjam of pent-up demand breakout in travel and hospitality services. And it won't be impacted, I don't think, to the slightest from anything that the Federal Reserve, the Russians, interest rates, or inflation does. People have money and they want to go out and spend it. Ha, but I digress. Okay, today's topic. My stock just crashed. What do I do now? I specifically use that phrase, my stock, because that's almost always the way people phrase it or look at it. And the first rule to investing is to never personalize your investments. Listen, the stock market doesn't care about your personal situation. So don't ever think of it in those terms. There are many issues that drive a stock price up or down. And the fact that you've made a profit or have a loss or have held it short-term or long-term, that doesn't weigh into the future direction of the stock. Future direction of the stock is based on earnings expectations of that company. And so if you've lost a boatload of money or made a boatload of money, either way, the stock market doesn't care. So don't personalize your stock ownership. So if you own a stock that's crashed and you're looking at a big loss, 
I'm not saying that's not important to you. It is. It affects your overall net worth and it could have implications on your tax situation, right? Whether you have a long-term or a short-term gain or loss. On an individual basis and on a wealth basis, that's something important and that's something you should think about and that's a discussion that maybe you should be having with your CPA or whoever advises you with taxes. But it is not an investment decision in terms of the future performance of that stock. So that's why I say you just don't want to personalize it in terms of the investment aspects. Yes, it may be a tax consideration, but it's not an investment consideration. The other reason why you shouldn't personalize things, uh, nor should you use that term, my stock, the phrase should be one of the stocks that I own, right? It should never be my stock. My stock is being you own one or two of them. That's not being diversified. And the lack of diversification is what gets people in trouble. And so with me right now, I'm suffering a major loss in one of the stocks I own. It's called Select Quote. My position in it is down just almost 80% from where I bought it. Now, I'm not happy about that. I never like to lose money. But it is one of the stocks that I own. It's not the only stock or one of the few stocks that I own. And so when a stock like that crashes, it doesn't phase me. Again, I'm not happy about it. But the reason I diversify my portfolio is for risk mitigation, which eases the pain of something terrible like a stock collapsing 50, 60, 70, 80, or 100%. And I always preach diversification, but no one ever wants to listen to it because diversification works against you just like it works for you. The downside of being diversified is that while no one stock will make you go broke, the flip side of that is that no one stock will also make you rich. And that's what most people want. Most people want a quick, easy, one-step solution to becoming rich and preferably getting rich quick. That's why people throw all their money into you know one sure thing, one sure bet, one lottery ticket. And while that one thing can make you rich, if you look at the overall probability the chances of becoming rich on one thing pale in comparison to the probability of one thing failing and making you lose all your money. That's why I avoid the common consensus on things and you know the ever-changing popularity or fads jumping in from what's being said in a meme stock or what the latest social media or Reddit comment or what some talking head on Wall Street saying that's driving everybody into one investment. As a contrarian investor, I never believe that hype, and I'm always trying to broadly diversify. And specifically in relation to Select Quote, that was one of my original COVID-90 purchases. I called it a COVID-90 portfolio as a play on words to COVID-19, and I broadly looked at 90 different stocks, right? The COVID-90, 90 stocks that I thought would be favored as the pandemic moved from being a pandemic into being endemic, right? It's all about the reopening trade. No, not all of those stocks were specifically travel or leisure or personalized services that were going to benefit specifically from the reopening. Select quote is actually an example of one of those that doesn't fit in that travel category, but it was still included in the COVID-90 reopening portfolio because the price of the stock had been so severely impacted 
by the onset of the pandemic. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that it was a, you know, newer IPO, a riskier company and a company that had a smaller valuation. It was really that risk off nature of the pandemic that had hurt a stock like Select Quote and others. And that's why I included them in my COVID-90 portfolio. Now, prior to buying into the COVID-90 portfolio and even after the COVID-90 portfolio, I've made some smaller other purchases. But overall, I own a lot more than just 90 stocks. Right now, I own about 140. But let's just scale it back and talk about the COVID-90. I had no problem of people taking their entire portfolio and investing it in those 90 stocks. And my reasoning for that was that even though the theme was concentrated in the, quote, reopening trade, overall within those 90 stocks, there was not a huge concentration in any one sector. It was a broadly diversified portfolio, and in particular, since it consisted of 90 stocks, even if you put 100% of your portfolio into those 90 stocks, that meant that your overall exposure to any one stock was just a little bit more than 1%. And 1% is a rounding error. The stock market fluctuates on any given day easily 1%. As I record this today, the overall S&P 500, a broadly diversified snapshot of the U.S. economy, that is down by over 2% today. It's varied over 4% just today alone from high to low, peak to trough. And so I'm not worried about a 1% or 2% overall failure rate within my portfolio on any one given stock. That's why I recommend diversification and depersonalizing and never thinking of something as my stock. You should be thinking of my stock portfolio, which is many stocks, spreading your risk and your reward across not only many individual stocks, but also multiple sectors of the economy. Now, I know you're probably saying, well, you don't want to own 90 stocks or you don't want to own 140 stocks like me. Well, that's fine. I don't always want to own that many stocks. I haven't always owned that many in the past and I don't plan to always own that many in the future. And so that's why broadly investing in ETFs or mutual funds that are passively diversified across the whole economy, that's why that makes so much sense. That's why I'm a huge proponent of telling people if there's only one thing they were going to buy or if they had a small amount of money and just wanted to put it all in that one thing or if they were looking at dollar cost averaging or just coming up with a very easy set it and forget it type investment strategy, then the simplest thing to do is just invest in an S&P indexed fund. That can be a mutual fund. It can be an ETF. It can be from Vanguard or Schwab or BlackRock. It doesn't matter who the provider of it is as long as it's something that's investing in the S&P 500 index or even in the total U.S. stock market index or even more broadly than that in the total global stock market index. By investing in that one type of fund, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket. Now, even if you have a large portfolio and you want to take advantage of focusing some of that wealth into a few stocks to try and get some outperformance, well, that's fine. And you can still do that. But you use those broad-based passive ETF index funds to add stability to your portfolio. 
So for example, let's say that you wanted to own 11 overall positions, and I think 11 stocks or 11 positions would be easy to manage and a way to invest in just a smaller amount of positions, but to still have broad diversification is to take, say, 75% of your overall portfolio and just put it in an S&P 500 index fund. So now you are broadly invested in the stock market. And then take that other 25% of your portfolio and split it up equally into the 10 stocks that you think are going to do well and outperform. So now you get broad diversification, but you also get some focused investing. And in that example that I just used, you wouldn't have any more than 2.5% exposure to any one stock position. So even if that company went bankrupt or the stock went to zero, you would only lose 2.5% of your overall portfolio. I can't overemphasize the importance of risk mitigation and achieving it through portfolio diversification. Now let's jump back to select quote. As I mentioned, I've lost almost 80% of my initial investment into that stock. At this point, I doubt seriously that I'll ever get my money back or make a profit in that stock. That doesn't mean that long term I don't like select quote. It doesn't mean that I'm currently selling the stock. And it doesn't mean that I wouldn't recommend it to other people to get into. Again, because I'm not personalizing this, right? For me as a personal decision, I'm probably never going to get back most of that 80%. But I'm continuing to hold this stock for now because I still think that it could go up and I could reclaim some of it. But I want to emphasize here that I'm not holding it in hopes that I'll get money back. I'm holding it because I think that it's crashed down so low now and that they're still a good and viable company that they're probably just oversold. And this is probably an opportunity as a good entry point for people that aren't already in the stock. Now, I personally don't plan on buying more of it because I already have the portion of my portfolio invested in it that is going to be in it. So I'm not going to double down and buy more, but I'm not selling it in panic because I think at this point it still has a much higher probability to go up then it go down. Doesn't mean it won't go down. Doesn't mean that I won't lose the other 20% I have invested in it. But I just think that it's gotten so beat up that it's not really a falling knife position anymore. The knife has fallen and dropped to the ground and is embedded in the floor. And so specifically to select quote, why do I still like it? Well, if you go back to episode 345, I covered in that episode why I like select quote. I compared it to Peloton and all the things I said about the business model and the concept of digitization, I stand by all that. The reason that I said I like Select Quote in that episode is why I still like it today. And so I have no problem with the broad concept and the business model of digitizing something like insurance services. And overall, I think that is still going to be a disruptive technology and a growth technology going forward. The question specifically, though, is can SelectQuote pull it off? Well, up till now, I've been favorable with their management. I've liked what the management's done, and that's why I chose to buy SelectQuote over similar companies that are in that business. For example, eHealth was another company that I looked at at the time when I was going to buy SelectQuote, and I went with SelectQuote over eHealth. And that decision wouldn't have played out really any differently one way or the other because both stocks, both in that online discount brokerage insurance type service, my investment in either one would have lost just as much money. So this is an impact that's not only hitting SelectQuote, but it's hitting that whole sector. 
And again, this is one of the reasons why I'm just willy-nilly not selling my entire position in select quotes, because I don't think that them as an individual company are getting punished as much as just that whole overall online brokerage insurance business is getting wiped out. And specifically where SelectQuote and eHealth and other of these companies have gotten hit was on the Medicare reinsurance and supplemental type insurance programs. That's really been the big area where a lot of these profits have come from, and that's just fallen apart over the last couple quarters. But again, someone will figure that out and it will work. So broadly speaking, I still like that sector. I just don't know which company is going to be a winner. It's like, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you could have known that social media was going to play out. You just wouldn't have known whether MySpace or Facebook would be the winner. But let's focus in on select quote. And let me tell you why for now I'm holding on and I'll hold on for probably the next three months or so. At that point, I'll reassess and I'll decide whether I just take a loss or whether I hold it for longer. One of the reasons I did buy SelectQuote was because although it's a, a new stock, meaning it's a new IPO, the company itself, the business motto itself, has actually been in business since, I don't know, the mid-1980s. I mean, the original founder of SelectQuote, so he was trying to take out the middleman of the insurance salesman and use technology of technology of that day was, you know, AM radio advertisements and a 1-800 number. That's how they generated their leads and how they closed their sales. But the essential business model is the same, and they've been doing it for you know nearly 40 years. That's one reason I really like the company. I also like the fact that that original founder stayed with the company and only you know, relatively recently retired. I think it was 2016, 2017 that he fully retired and left the company. I think if you go back to you know around 2017, 2018 or so, when they were operating as a private company and without the original founder at the helm, that company went from something like under $100 million in sales to ending last year where they were just under a billion. So under this independent, privately run management team, they've had explosive growth. That's impressive to me. And they also just didn't try and cash in right away. They didn't IPO the company until a good four or five years after the founder left, that would have been probably around the spring of 2020. I didn't buy it at the IPO like I almost never buy anything at the IPO because everything comes out with a lot of hype and hysteria. I almost always wait at least six months, if not 18 months, to buy into an IPO. And specifically as it relates to select quote, I wish I would have waited 18 months. But I did wait until the fall of that year. It was like October, uh, mid-October of 2020. The stock was recovering from a big double bottom that it's had after all the euphoria and hype of the IPO wore off. It had double bottomed that summer. I bought it that fall just as it was going through an, another sell-off and it was retesting that previous double bottom. And I didn't buy it exactly at the bottom, but I came pretty darn close of getting in on the triple bottom. And then from there, it just skyrocketed. It went from about $17 to over $30 in about four or five months. It abruptly sold off and broke its short-term 10 or 20-day moving average. Looking back with 2020 hindsight, yeah, I should have sold then, but that was also right around the time that we saw the general cooling off of the reopening trade. We started getting into the summer months when the Delta wave of COVID hit and you know that really pulled the rug out from under the reopening trade. And so 
Again, this stock was following the general pattern of the portfolio or of the index it was in, just a little more extreme. And so I didn't want to sell during a panic. I held on to it and I thought it really had some good floor somewhere between that, you know, $15 and $20 price range, even down to $10. The other thing that has always impressed me about the management team at SelectQuote is not only that they seem to have been able to drive growth, but that they also have skin in the game. The inside management team, even though the founder's gone, they still own something like 4 or 5% of the company. Now, what I like about that kind of a number is that it's not so much concentrated ownership that the managers and the board of director can do anything they want, right? If they only own 5% of the company, that means that 95% of the company is probably going to be held by large institutional investors, and those smart money investors are going to have influence and oversight over what management's doing. And so in this case, I like the fact that management has skin in the game, but I also like the fact that there's a lot of outside oversight and people looking over their shoulders. In fact, it'll be interesting to see that if there's any filings of whether or not management has bought any stock on this recent dip and pullback, because back in September, when there was a big pullback, management came in and around $12 or $13 a share, they bought 2 or $3 million with their own money. So I don't know, is that a Ponzi scheme? pumping and dumping where they appear to be buying two or three million dollars in the front door while they were running out the back door with 10 or 20 million. I don't know. We'll have to see how that all plays out. But I do like when management goes in and buys on the dip. But it totally fell apart. It's trading now for under three dollars. And that has come after two consecutive quarters of losses. You have to remember that I mentioned that they had that exponential growth from about, you know, 2017, 2018, up through 2021. Well, they not only had all that expansion in the top line growth, the revenue, but they've also made an incredible amount of money on the bottom line. They've been highly profitable and especially very profitable the early part of last year. I mean, that's why this price of the stock skyrocketed so much into April of 2021. Well, now though, over these last two quarters, their concentration, their profitability, the renewals of the Medicare supplement type stocks, that's totally fallen apart. And again, it's not just with them, it's within the whole industry. And that's why the whole bottom has fallen out of the stock price. Now, again, I think it's overdone. I think they're an excellent company. They've been around for you know nearly 40 years. They've weathered other storms. They seem to have solid management in place. And while I don't think that I'm ever going to get my money back out of it, I think that selling for under $3 is essentially now just a penny stock, but it's a penny stock that's based on a solid business concept and on the foundation of management leadership that has showed that it can make money over the last you know many decades. So while that's not a 100% guarantee, I think that they will survive. I think they'll go on to future profitability. And because the price is so low now, that any type of a movement could potentially bring very large gains. So while I don't think they're getting up to $15 or $20 anytime soon, I do think that they could get to $350. I think they could get to $4. I mean, they're selling for such a small amount that any $20, $30, $0.40 cent rise in the price drastically increases your rate of return. So for now, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to see what happens over the next quarter. I'll reassess at that point, and I'll decide whether to stick with it or just to take the loss and move on. Well, hey, as always, invest with caution. 
Thanks for listening. Until the next episode, this is John Pagliano wishing you the very best returns.